Welcome to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle Macloon. You can find this podcast and other fine Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. Today, we have a great guest, J. Jeffrey Barber, author of Three Rogues in Gettysburg, published by Milford House Press, an imprint of Sunbury Press. Mr. Barber is a historian, a retired curator at the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery. His research interests include the portraiture of the Jacksonian and Civil War eras and the American presidency. He was the project coordinator for the Smithsonian's popular Civil War website in observance of the Civil War's 150th anniversary. He is also an editorial consultant for two Smithsonian books, The Civil War, A Visual History, published in 2011 by DK Books, and Smithsonian Civil War, Inside the National Collection, published by Smithsonian in 2013. He was the curator of the Portrait Gallery's Time Magazine collection of more than 2,000 works of original cover art. Welcome, Mr. Barber. Well, thank you, Michelle. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here, too. Your book, Three Rogues in Gettysburg, a historical novel set in the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg, begins with an actual photograph. Can you tell us a little bit about that photograph? Well, that photograph got the wheels turning for me about the book. It's an iconic image, and I think the only copy that I know of is in the Library of Congress. In any event, I've, I've always liked, that's been a special photograph for me. I've always liked that, been intrigued by it. And so I got to wondering, whatever happened to these three soldiers? You know, they were definitely prisoners because there are no, no weapons visible in the, in the photograph. And the photograph, by the way, is, it's regarded as the most iconic image of what the Confederate soldier looked like what gear he used what uniform he he wore which is was not much of a uniform it was um they were all the diversity of uniforms was was major and so it photographs of union soldiers are uh, uh, there are many 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 but not so with the confederacy the confederacy had a shortage of everything including portraiture and photography and so this image seemed like a, well, it's a historic image. There's, uh, it's an anonymous image. We really don't know who the photographer was, nor do we know who these three soldiers are. And we probably never will know. I thought about what would it take for someone to come forward and identify these people? And people have come forward and identified these people, but there are gaps all over their, their reasoning. It would take something like a family coming across a diary or a letter of a soldier that writes that he was captured at Gettysburg and giving the location, we know the location of where this photograph was taken. And uh, that was discovered a number of years ago. And that soldier would, the soldier gave the location, which was near the Gettysburg Seminary, the theological seminary there. That's, and then if you went to the compiled service records and discovered that, yes, this indeed was someone that was captured at Gettysburg, and then it might be believable. 
But anyway, there's a lot of mystery. Jim, describe exactly what the photograph is for our audience who may be familiar with this photograph. If you buy the book, the photograph is the cover of the book and the photograph is the story. So explain briefly what that photograph is to our audience. The photograph shows three Confederate soldiers, but they're up against a sort of a stone wall. Uh, One is sitting, the fellow sitting is the person on the left, and there are two other soldiers. There's a tall soldier standing in the center, and then a soldier uh, to his right, all laden down with gear. And uh, you can see the, the one piece of paraphernalia that the soldiers always had in common was a tin cup. And you can see that tin cup on two of the soldiers. You can't see it on the soldier in the center. That's the image. Now, that image has weathered the, the test of time, so to speak. It's still, you know, just as strong an image as it was when the photographer, who knew a good image when he saw one, made the, the the photograph. You know, it's interesting. So the Battle of Gettysburg, 1863, and you have someone who took the photograph. What role did photography play in the Civil War? It was new, right? It was, and I think that was our first war that we have that it's actually photographed. And photography was a huge phenomenon. I just recently read Frederick Douglass, one of the most photographed men in the 19th century, 160 times he was photographed. Photography was becoming very important, but what role did that play in the Civil War? Well, it played a huge role, not that it affected, you know, army strategy or tactics or anything like that, but as a document of what took place. You're right in saying that it was the first major war in which a photography played a documentary role. Now, the first war was the Mexican uh, Mexican-American War, in which there were war photographs taken, but they're not. Oh, okay. But the, but the Civil War. Well, the best example of that is what Burns did, the wonderful Civil War series that he put together, and it's all Civil War photography. Sure, sure. Uh, there was no video in that day and age or anything like that. So, so he made a you know absolutely captivating program, series of programs, um, just with the original Civil War photography. Photography. Well, your story opens up. So you weave a complete historical narrative around this photograph. And your story opens up with actually a photographer taking the picture of these three men and kind of the mechanics of what he needs to do to take the picture. These people had to be perfectly still. They were definitely posed. Somehow a photographer got these three men to pose. You call this photographer Winfred, who's a little bit henpecked by his wife, whose wife is not really completely sold on him being a photographer at this early point in time. That kind of starts off your narrative. And then we follow the lives of the three soldiers, especially one soldier, Virgil. Which one did you imagine Virgil to be? Was Virgil the tall one? Was he the one sitting down? Which one? In my imagination, and this is all fiction, it is a novel, I imagine Virgil to be like the soldier on the far left. He's seated on the left, and he's wearing a hat called a beehive, where you'll need to to see the book cover for that. But I imagine that to be Virgil. Virgil 
on his right, the tall soldier, I imagine to be a fellow by the name of Jeb, and beside him to his right is a soldier I named Tuck. I tried to keep the anonymity of these soldiers by not designating where they came from, what regiment they were in, and anything else that would define these people. There is that anonymity, which is true to the actual image. So your story really begins with a photograph and then soldiers kind of wandering off to go get a drink of water because they're thirsty. They end up in the farm house of a Quaker woman. Her husband has gone and it's a Quaker woman. And this is three days after this is right after the Battle of Gettysburg. A couple questions here. Why did you make Hannah? who is the farmer's wife, why did you decide to make her a Quaker? In a short answer, it would be the Quaker pacifism, you know, juxtaposed with with war. And so I thought that would be, be appropriate. And I also was looking for a community, someone that was from a community in which high moral values and that she could then be dismissed from, if you will. And so Quakers, I don't think, shunned people. But, for instance, if your marriage wasn't by Quaker law or whatever, you could be disowned. Or in any event, your community could be very unhappy with you. So it was that sense of getting her out of her community and being sort of with her, shall we say, husband, but as the book follows, we're not really sure, and we really, uh, she really wasn't her husband. So anyway, it was a way of sort of isolating uh, Hannah and her family and putting them in a strange town of Gettysburg. I could have done, I could have used an Amish couple, but that was too close to where the Amish really lived. So this this, I envision these people maybe coming from Philadelphia and relocating in Gettysburg. That's okay. all. Virgil tells Hannah, the farmer's wife's oldest son, Seth, says the war's complicated. I believe that was Virgil that said that. To, is, am I correct? I think that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that said the war is complicated. And one of the things that your historical novel shows is truly how complicated the Civil War was, that it was not clean cut. There was nothing easy about this, as we find very typical in civil wars around the world. Gettysburg is set on the Maryland-Pennsylvania border, or not far from it. And so you had Pennsylvania, who was an abolitionist state, a northern state. And then you have, in Maryland, you have, it was a anti-abolitionist state. And with that border being so close, you have something called the Underground Railroad and the Slavery and Fugitive Law. How were those operative in that area after the Battle of Gettysburg? Let's back up to, you mentioned the war was complicated, and and it certainly was. And the best example of that might be the true or false question, and that would be Abraham Lincoln began the Civil War to end slavery. True or false? Well, that's false on two counts. Uh, One, uh, Abraham Lincoln didn't begin the war. 
And two, he entered the war not to end slavery, but to bring the nation together again, you know, to end uh, the secession. Slavery then becomes as a goal, happens a little later. So that's reading history as it was written. We tend nowadays to read history backwards. And if you do that, you get the wrong answers to things. So now to complicate things, to give you another angle on that, right before the the war began, Robert E. Lee was overheard to say, I wish I owned every slave in the nation, because if I did, I would free them all to avoid this war. Hmm. That's Hmm. something that Abraham Lincoln could easily have said. But this is coming from Robert E. Lee. Okay, so then back to Gettysburg on the border or near the border. And Maryland is the key there. Maryland was a a neutral state. It never seceded. There was slavery in Maryland. And it didn't fall under the slavery. The end of slavery in Maryland did not fall under the Emancipation Proclamation because the state never seceded. Maryland was a gateway, especially in the Gettysburg area, of what was called the Underground Railroad of slaves escaping. And so there were any number of with the Underground Railroad station houses. And these were houses in which runaway slaves could take refuge. And they were they were well known within the within that abolitionist community uh, which was quite large. One of the symbols you bring out in your book is actually and I've grown up with them my whole life, and I did not realize this. Uh, and you used to see them in the South. You don't see them anymore because they're not woke and they're whatever they are. But the kind of the black iron statue of a boy or a young man holding a lamp, was that a symbol of the Underground Railroad? Well, that's a question I can't really answer. And to be honest with you, I don't know whether I think I may have, have read something about that, but but I can't say that it's it, it, that it was. Um, but I use it in the book anyway. So that's fiction, nonfiction. But I thought that was very interesting because those are things that at least Southerners have seen most of their lives. Now they're gone. And I just thought that was an interesting symbol. You open your book with a quote by Chamberlain, by General Chamberlain, how war brings out best in good people and the worst in bad people. And I'm kind of summing that up. And we really see that in your characters as you develop your characters. So a man like Virgil, who's actually a good man, and he really comes up to the situation. And you see kind of Jeb, who's kind of a near-to-well and runs off with shoes, and he kind of goes bad. As a professional historian and researching the Civil War, did you find this true, this statement to be true, uh, beyond your characters, but in real living characters of the Civil War? To be honest, I never really thought of that until I read the quote by this General Joshua Chamberlain who was the commander of the the 20th Maine, and he played a a key minor role at Gettysburg, and I won't go into that, but but he'll win the Medal of Honor. And um, there were dozens of people that won the Medal of Honor, and he was one of them. So I never really thought of that quote before until I read it, that that, uh, concept. And I'd say it was certainly true with, with the characters in my book. Now, the rules of war, for instance, with confiscation property. 
that changes from peacetime. So uh, soldiers sometimes had, you know, went by the rules of war and, and pocketed things that maybe they shouldn't have in civilian garb. So so that that changes things a little bit. But I don't know exactly what Joshua Chamberlain had in mind when he gave when he said that, made that quote. But yeah, I think so. I, I think in terms of, you know, for instance, Robert E. Lee, who was a model American for the war. Forget that he, he went with the South. But that, that's another story, and there's a reason for that. But Lee certainly emerged. Um, he kept his dignity and, and his morality, if you will, right through to the end. And, and Grant realized that. Lincoln realized that. And Congress realized that in 1975 when it, it gave Lee back his citizenship. Interesting. Did, why did Lee lose his citizenship? Because he was part of the secession movement. Oh, okay. So, so those you had to reapply for your citizenship, ah. which Lee did, but apparently the papers got lost or someone lost them for Lee within the, in the patent office, or, and uh, they were only found later. So that's why the, the delay took place. Can you imagine that happening in 2021 now? Oh, my word. <laughs> yeah, we've gone down a different road, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Your book, it brings out some real adult themes and basically about prejudice because you've got Southerners, you've got Confederates who are now living in Northern or Yankee world about personal identity of who and what it means to be a part of a community or to be a part of a cause, especially in the time of civil war. Civil wars are so poisonous because it pits one side against the other. And I've always contended that offensive defensive wars, countries get over faster than civil wars. The cuts in the wounds are so deep from civil war. And we are still suffering from those wounds today. But you tell a narrative of how people who were actually living in that time were able to find a way forward, even through their differences, even through their struggles, and even through their hardship, which actually is the American story in so many different ways. Why did you write this novel? What was your impetus towards writing this novel? Well, it was to, I was fascinated by the three uh, Confederates in the photograph, and I really was just wondering what happened to them. And I've always sort of liked stories of people, you know, either escaping or, or traveling or, or something. And I thought that this will be, a, you know, an escape-oriented book. And it turned out not so much to be true as, you know, it took me, I don't know, two years to write this book. So I had a lot of time to think about it. So, but as I was thinking about it in the beginning, the story, I realized my story was not going to be on the road. These guys would never leave Gettysburg. In other words, the story was in the Gettysburg area. I sort of found that fascinating. You have some really interesting characters. The Benjamin Franklin Frumpft, the character Sybil, who is a fortune teller in the beginning of the book, and she's actually at the end of the book and helps you kind of knit your story together. I guess he was a provost marshal, the Benjamin Franklin Frumpft, who was kind of your protagonist during the, the story. How did you find these characters? 
I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't know. But anyway, they emerged, so they came to me. The Frumpt, I wanted to to show Frumpt as as sort of not a very you know, likable person. And so Frumpt will be, he's an assistant sheriff, a deputy sheriff, and he's also a deputy provost marshal. And he takes seriously the fugitive slave law. So for him, he sees the runaway slaves as big business. So here you have this unionist, if you will, not supporting emancipation, really, where you have Virgil, who is a Southerner, and I think I throw in some clues as to he may be a Virginian from the Shenandoah Valley, who really looks upon, you know, doesn't think that much of, uh, about slavery and certainly doesn't support slavery because he supports Hannah, who's, the, who's hosting these, these gentlemen, if you will, he supports Hannah's, you know, intentions of her Underground Railroad sympathies. You also talk about something that I thought was very interesting, and I never heard it before, and I've since read about it, the Sanitation Society, how she delivers pies to the Sanitation Society. What was that in Civil War? Oh, the Women's Sanitation, yeah. Um, what is that? that? Was- what is the Women's Sanitation Society? or? Yeah, association, or, or I forget how I, I phrased it. But no, that was... A- just an example of the of incredibly important and large role that women played in the Civil War, and just not at Gettysburg, but everywhere where there was a battle and, and whatnot. But in Gettysburg, yeah, women of the town just came together and volunteered in, in many different capacities as nurses or whatever. And that was not unusual, unusual circumstances, but it, it was natural from what I'm saying. And that was true of the men, too. The community surrounding Gettysburg, the, the people that came and volunteered to assist in one, one way or another was just amazing. Why is Gettysburg still so vivid in our imagination? Was it because of Lincoln's speech or is it just because of the horrendous loss? I think that was the most battlefield casualties of all time, 160,000 or something. I'm not sure that's been repeated. What do you think in the American imagination why Gettysburg still looms so large? It was the largest battle of the Civil War. There were over combined armies numbered uh, about 175 or something like that. The the Union having closer to uh, the 100 figure, 100,000. So it was a large war involved a lot of soldiers. It was a three-day war, which was unusual. It was a long war. Well, battle, that is. And I think the fact that it happened in near a town had a lot to do with why we still remember it. It wasn't unlike Antietam, which is basically took place on farmers' fields. It's, Antietam is still a, a wonderful battlefield to visit. Gettysburg is special because it was a town. Lincoln went back there in November of 1863, gave the Gettysburg Address. So that that was historic. That alone gave Gettysburg a, a notch up on the you know sightseeing 
list. Okay. <laughs> uh, for an, any number of reasons. And it's just beautiful territory, country up there for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, and, and that's not even mentioning the the role it played tipping the scales of, of who was winning the war. Lincoln came away f- w- from Gettysburg. Uh, he was disappointed that Confederate Army wasn't crushed. But he had hopes for the future. And so Lincoln was optimistic. And it really tilted the balance of, of the war. Of the war. Well, your book has so many wonderful, wonderful narrative details in it. And one of the things that I really enjoyed reading about was the food. You are meticulously described the food that Hannah cooked. Have you eaten a lot of that food? Have you? <laughs> Maybe I described it too much. Yes, I have. My roots are from that area. My parents are from that area, and Pennsylvania Dutch was what I grew up with, and that's that's growing up in Alexandria, Virginia. Okay. And, um, okay. Our car never went much south beyond Alexandria, but I have memories from like three years old of driving up to see grandparents and relatives in nearby Carlisle and New Cumberland, just up the road from Gettysburg. You know, we were driving right along Pickett's Charge. Yes, it's in my in my blood, if you will. So yes, a lot of the food, uh, the chicken corn soup, ask anyone up there in that area, they know about chicken corn soup. Okay, okay. Shoe fly pie. Those are all Pennsylvania Dutch foods. You know, you sort of go with what you know. You know, I remember eating fried oatmeal. It was something that at my grandmother's house, take oatmeal, instead of throwing out what's left, you put that in the refrigerator and it, it sets up then you slice it and you fry it. Okay. With maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good because it did. It added a really interesting narrative to the story. It actually added a very interesting human part to the story. But you do really well in this book. Not only you do bring a sense of history to it, but your narrative told through both a male and female perspective. And you don't find that on a regular basis of an author that is be, is able to tell that narrative through both viewpoints of male and female. And you do. Your story is as rich with your male parts as it is with the female characters in your book. So this is a really good book for book clubs. I can imagine it would be a really good book for classrooms as a young adult novel because of the history behind it, because of the the rich emotions, the showing how complex something like the Civil War is, that it's the Civil War wasn't, they weren't cartoon people. They The decisions weren't black and white. These were real live experiences that real live people had to live through. And I, I think more than ever now, we need to talk about the Civil War, about the men and women who fought in the Civil War, the men and women who made the decisions to go to the Civil War in the complexity of the time that they deserve and the complexity of the humanity they deserve. They weren't just a statue to be thrown down. They were not something to be characterized as a cartoon, but they were real human beings going through a horrific struggle and making the best decisions they could in the context of their time. And your novel really reminds us 
of that. It's really a great story, but I think its deeper meaning is the reminding of the humanity of the Civil War. Well, I liked what you said, Michelle. Uh, well, I liked a lot of things about what you said, <laughs> but especially, especially about they they made decisions to the best of their ability at the, at that time, and that's something that we would have been challenged just like they would in in that time period. And you know, we tend to judge probably too much. Lincoln warned us of that in his, his second inaugural address about he had to bring the nation together. He knew that the war was just about over and he is looking down the road for him. He had to bring the South and the North together. And the one way not to do that was to judge the South. He was not judgmental, nor was he judgmental on his other great speed, the uh, Gettysburg Address. So I, I liked what you said that, yeah, they made the best decisions with what they they knew and understood. Sure. And, uh, you know, in 200 years, people are going to judge us for the decisions we make now. And we're trying to do it, even though our media wants to lead us otherwise. But we everyone is trying to make the best decision possible in the context of their lived reality right now. And that really ultimately is the human experience. Where can people buy your book? Amazon. Amazon. Okay. The great overlord. (laughs) (laughs) If you're in Gettysburg, you may find it too, in a shop or two. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, Mr. Barber, we really, really appreciate this conversation. We have been speaking with J. Jeffrey Barber, author of Three Rogues in Gettysburg, published by Milford House Press, an imprint of Sunbury Press, a small publishing house that is located near Gettysburg. So look for their books. Look for this book. This is a good book. It is really a good book. And if your book club is looking for a book, this is a great book to read. You have been listening to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. I am Michelle McLoon, your host. You can find my podcast and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Michelle M., at Michelle McAloon one Mr. Barber, I really want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk about this absolutely wonderful book. And I hope people will go out and buy this book. We need to talk about the Civil War. We need to understand the Civil War. And like you told me, said so the, the way you understand the Civil War is to understand who Abraham Lincoln and... Robert E. Lee. To understand the Civil War, you have to understand those two men and the decisions they made in the times that they made them to understand truly what the civil war was about, that it was about many, many different things, not just slavery as all civil wars are. There's no one reason it's complex. You're absolutely right. And as a footnote to all this, the three individuals that people know the best or remember the best from the civil war are Lincoln, Grant, and Lee. And the one virtue that they all had in common was humility. Humility just, it's, it has to be one of the top virtues to have. It's right up there with charity and you know love and, and whatever. It's a, it's a trait that you don't find everywhere, but they all three had it. Interesting. I think some politicians today could learn from some lessons from the Civil War. All right. Thank you, Mr. Barber. We really, really appreciate your time to talk to us about your novel. I've enjoyed your other podcasts. Oh, thank you. All right. God bless. 